Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. This particular podcast has what I call a digest, a short summary of my thoughts and the highlights and the things I most enjoyed about it. You can find that at the end of this podcast. So you can either listen to the whole podcast and the digest at the end or just the digest at the end. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, today, my guest is another guest from Singularity University, uh, Pascal Finette. Pascal, how are you doing? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was just telling Pascal offline and asking him all these questions. And I said, wait a minute, we better record this because we're getting great stuff right off the bat. Uh, I was telling Pascal that everyone I talked to from Singularity University has so much that they're working on. It's just awesome. So I'm excited to talk to you today. And uh, I think listeners will get a lot out of this. Thank you. So, I'm um, super excited pa- to be here. Yeah, so Pascal, um, you work with startups uh, at Singularity University. Is that right? That's correct, yes. All right. So, yeah, if you would just give listeners a brief overview of what you do and uh, you will know, we'll delve into it from there. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess technically my job title here is uh, vice president for what we call startup solutions. And that spans um, all our programs, which touches either entrepreneurs or startups in one way or the other. So this includes our um, flagship program we run in the summer, which is called the Global Solutions Program where we bring 19 incredibly talented entrepreneurs uh, to our campus for 10 weeks and educate them and inspire them and challenge them to build companies to tackle the world's biggest problems, leveraging technology. Uh, It includes a startup incubator, startup accelerator, um, a venture fund. So it's kind of like the whole gamut of anything from um, education and inspiration to empowering and supporting entrepreneurs. So, and you must have a great position because you get to see all these uh, these startups, you know, form their plans and get going and hopefully get off the ground. What are some of the uh, insights you've gotten from, from working in your space? Uh, first of all, yes, it is an incredible position. It's, um, uh, it, it truly is uh, like a kid in a, in a candy store um, as I get to work with uh, just phenomenal entrepreneurs. Also doing things uh, in many, many different areas, you know, anything from uh, artificial intelligence, synthetic biology, robotics, et cetera. Um, and I think the, the interesting key takeaways for me are that in a lot of ways, um, regardless how diverse companies are uh, in terms of what they're doing, the technologies they're using, the markets they're addressing, a good chunk of the challenges um, for a company to um, scale up, to establish itself, are always the same. It always comes down to kind of the same set of things, which are around how solid is your strategy, how good is your team, how good is the chemistry in your team, how well do you communicate. Um, those kind of like the soft factors or the managing, management factors seem to be the same across industries. Okay. So what are, I don't know if you can mention them, but what are some of the most interesting, amazing startups that you've helped be a part of over the past year? You know, what you're doing is basically you're, you're asking the, the proud dad of, uh, you know, uh, five wonderful kids to, to pick the, their favorite. Um, 
which is yeah. super hard. <laughs> um, and just to give you a couple of ideas of the companies we work with. Um, so probably one of the best known and, and just incredible fun to work with uh, companies is Made in Space. Uh, they created the first 3D printer, which works in microgravity. They have their 3D printer now up on the International Space Station, uh, printing anything from replacement parts to medical devices up on the International Space Station. Um, and this is wow. obviously super important. You know, if we ever want to explore uh, beyond the, the our current boundaries, if, uh, even if you think about going to Mars, uh, we can't take all the the parts, the replacement parts, uh, with us. Uh, so we have to have the ability to manufacture in space. Um, so that's totally out there, totally wacky. Um, uh, probably a little bit more earthbound, uh, we have a company called Miraculous. Uh, they're using a DNA-based test to detect cancer in your blood, um, typically pre-stage one. So before it it, it be uh, detectable by any other methodology, which allows you to um, of course, then treat cancer much easier and with significantly higher uh, survival rates than in any other form. Um, they're currently wow. in preclinical trials and doing really, really amazing work. Um, so those are just like two simple examples. Well, not simple, but like two examples, which kind of give you the gamut of what we're doing and also show you probably like how exciting it is to work with these people. Well, let's talk a little bit about these these two startups. So Made in Space, what were some of the uh, big challenges of 3D printing in, in microgravity and what, how did they overcome them? So it's a truly, it's a, it's a really interesting, they had uh, to overcome a really interesting problem, which is um, if, you, um, if you look at a typical 3D printer today, um, they're, they're uh, effectively melting a plastic and then taking like very tiny little drops of this plastic and then assemble them. Um, you can imagine that um, that works really well on Earth. You've got gravity and it pulls the plastic down. Um, an interesting challenge, so the challenge they had to overcome is how do you do this in a, in a world where uh, you have very, very limited amounts of gravity. So they had to really go deep into um, both the material science of the actual, like how do we create this plastic, like well, how do you melt it down and, and create the little droplets you need, um, as well as the actual physical way you print this. Um, uh, so the mechanics effectively of, of this work. Um, and then the other challenge that overcome is um, in a classic environment, in a normal environment, you've got your computer and it's hooked up to your 3D printer. And, you know, the stuff is in, in like on a workbench effectively. Uh, in the case of the International Space Station, the printer is floating in space while the control software, like the, the design is being done on Earth. So you have to, so you have to find a way to like send this up to the printer and get the telemetry data back from the printer, um, so you know if the print works well, if you know like you need to make adjustments, etc. So they have overcome a ton of uh, challenges, and uh, they've made countless flights, which I'm very jealous, by the way. Uh, countless flights uh, in this hyperbolic flights, um, where they take you in a plane and they basically have the plane go into like a deep dive, uh, so you experience. Active. Oh, I've done that. Yeah, yeah the zero not. G flight. The zero G flight. Oh, exactly. you got to do it. Yeah, you got to exactly. do it. It's They've really done cool. like tons of them. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, really fascinating. So they took their printer basically into a G zero G flight, and then, um, you know, try to try to figure those problems out. Huh. 
And so they've figured it out and it's working? It's working, yes. They've got their uh, first printer on the International Space Station since more than a year. Uh, they've got their second wow. printer on the International Space Station, which is um, uh, just about to get operational. So it's like it was uh, shipped up or sent via a rocket into space. Um, it's now on, this, on the ISS and they're about to make it um, operational. Yeah, so they're, they're actually printing parts there, which is just tremendous. Well, it's really cool. Huh. And what about the uh, the second company, the second startup you mentioned? So what Miraculous is doing is they're looking for something called RNA, which is a subset of, of DNA. And the, the very simple way to explain this is to say that um, certain types of cancer um, effectively shed some of these RNA parts into your bloodstream. And the challenge um, they had to overcome is that you effectively need to find um, a very, very small particle in this ocean of, uh, you know, non-particle. So in your blood, I mean, it's not like your blood is teeming with this RNA. There's like very occasionally you can find this RNA module, uh, molecule. Is it what, like parts per billion or parts per million? Yeah, exactly. So the way they express this is uh, imagine you would uh, try to find a, uh, a jelly bean in a swimming pool. Um, wow. So they had to they had to overcome a bunch of like uh, challenges in terms of uh, creating a um, effectively a trap which uh, attracts this this uh, RNA particle uh, out of this like this huge amount of uh, of of non particles um, and then have that have that trap react in a way which in their case actually it starts illuminating so um, you shine. Um, a specific wavelength light on it and uh, should the trap effectively close around this partic- particle of RNA, it starts illuminating, <clears throat> creates a pattern, and you then use computer vision to basically see it. Um, so they had to overcome a bunch of challenges in uh, both the biochemistry or the, bio, uh, the synthetic biology space, um, uh, computer vision, uh, and then also just in, in terms of like this is an effectively a medical device. So it needs to be robust. It needs to be reproducible. It needs to be uh, usable in a context where um, a clinician can use this. So not just like a highly trained lab person. So really fascinating challenges to overcome. So are they able to do it? Are they able to uh, pick up enough RNA from any type of cancer or certain kinds? Or what, what stage are they at? So... They are able to do it, which is phenomenal and really interesting. So um, this only works with certain types of cancer. So not every cancer has this type of behavior where they shed um, these RNA parts into your uh, into your bloodstream. Um, the, the company is currently in pre uh, preclinical trials, um, so they're doing really well. They're very well funded. Work with a bunch of um, large industry players, um, and you know, knock on wood. Uh, in a couple of years from now, we will see this test on the shelves and uh, of of uh, the pharma industry and uh, your doctors being being able to use that. Wow! Uh, can you mention uh, what what types of cancers seem to do this? That's a really good question, and I would refer back to the uh, to the company. Um, Okay. I actually, I would need to get you the list. I have the, I have the list somewhere on my computer, but uh, top of my head, I, I, uh, I actually blank on this. No problem. Well, let's let's get into your, um, your job and mm-hmm. the challenges in it. So, how many startups do you have to look at 
to even say, okay, well, you know, Singularity is willing to take them on and, and work with you and incubate you. Uh, what are some of the challenges you face? Um, it's interesting. So for us, it's interesting. Um, I'm calling this the uh, Matroshka doll problem. And uh, uh, if you're familiar mm. with these, like the, the Russian dolls, where like the doll is in the doll is in the doll. Um, yeah, the Russian nesting little, dolls. Yeah. yeah, the nesting dolls. Exactly. Um, so for us, it's a little bit that kind of like challenge, which is because at Singularity University, we're really focused on exponentially accelerating technologies, solving humanity's grand challenges. Um, if you look at the overall market for startups, all the startups in the world, that is a, already a just a, a fairly small subset of those. And then in those subset of those companies which attack the problems we're interested in leveraging technology, um, for us to work with them, they need to be at a specific stage, right? So they can't be too early, so just idea stage doesn't work for us. They can't be too late because then we can't actually drive any value. Um, so effectively, you get um, a subset of the market and you get a subset of that subset, um, which makes the total addressable market, if you, you, know, if you use the business terms for that, um, not overly large for us. There's a couple of factors which, which help us a little bit in this, in this regard going forward. Um, one is the market itself is growing. So we see more and more companies uh, really jumping onto these new technologies and, and wanting to tackle really big problems. That's uh, one factor for us, uh, which, is, uh, which is definitely helping. Um, the second one is as Singularity University itself becomes probably a little bit more well-known, uh, we get more and more inbound requests. So more and more people find us, uh, which makes it easier for us, of course, uh, to, right. uh, to uh, work with them. But it's an interesting, it's an interesting challenge. Um, it would be easier if we would be, uh, you know, if we would, we would do mobile phone apps uh, in gaming, for example. It surely is more of right. those. Well, what's the core tenet of Singularity University? What's like the top, one or two things that you look for in a startup that, you know, the first pass to tell you whether it's worth looking at or not? You know, it's, that's actually interesting. I get the question quite often and um, the answer is actually pretty simple because it's, it's literally the same answer as probably every accelerator, every good accelerator in the world will give you um, with one little caveat. So we look at, as I mentioned earlier, we look at, okay, so how, how are you leveraging, which exponentially accelerating technology are leveraging and how are you doing this? And then are you tackling a really big problem, a, a worthy problem? Um, so the, the kind of like the silly way to like do the negative of that is to say we are not interested in someone who's using an artificial intelligence to build and better angry birds. As funny as that might be, <laughs> it's, not for, it's not for us. But right. then the second, the second large part is, and this is, I fundamentally believe this, and you know, many conversations with other accelerators um, and other people in the startup ecosystem, it's the same for all of us, which is you ultimately look at how good is the team? Um, what have they done in the past? How much do you believe that they can do what they say they're doing? Um, how much do you believe in their capacity to like build this future they want to build in? Um, and ultimately, that's the same with every accelerator program. So what are some of the things that you learned that you didn't know before you started doing this? And maybe the average person or the average uh, person that's in, a, in a, a startup doesn't know or should know. Huh, that's a really good question. I don't know if I actually, 
I don't know if I actually know anything which which is not common knowledge. But then uh, sometimes you you falsely assume that like everybody knows stuff. Um, it's a really good question. Let me think about this. Um, what have I learned? Probably not. Well, maybe so we could break it into pieces. Yeah, yeah what, I, I can. I can give you, you one. Seen? I can okay. give you one which is definitely um, which surprised me. Um, so as much as like I think it's common knowledge that you know like you hear this like the team is everything and it's really people are important etc um what i found is that more often than not companies fail not because the technology doesn't work because they don't get funding because any of those external factors but because the team falls apart i've seen this like so many times it's unbelievable um which led us to invest heavily into uh, leadership development. So I think as an accelerator, we are, we are uh, on one hand, of course, we are teaching and educating you in uh, you know, management practices and technologies and so on. We surround you with advisors and mentors and all this kind of stuff. But at the, at the core of it, um, if the team doesn't work, if the team is not able to communicate, if the leaders in the team are not able to, to lead and lead in a way which is like we call this leading from behind. Um, so not the, okay. you know, like the bossy, like I, I command people around, but like uh, leading truly as a, as a really like uh, as a fundamental leader, um, companies fail. And it's it's really it's, it's the number one com- it's the number one reason why I see companies fail for us, which again like it was I knew it but I, I it was not as clear and not as viscerally clear to me. When you say that the teams fail, I mean what happens is it the initial team over time do they change and start fighting or as they grow uh, the roles have to change and some people can't do it or like what you know like break go into that a little bit delve into it like. What happens yeah. to make failures? I think the biggest uh, the biggest part of that is the fact that, um, uh, as you well know, of course, uh, building a startup is incredibly stressful. And um, I think a lot of people like uh, so a couple of factors. This one is, I think there's a there's an idealized version of building and running a startup, which is kind of like the media version of it, right? It's like we play ping pong all day long. We hang out on all our cool couches. We have fun. We throw around ideas. We you know make the deal and like we're all happy. And then the reality of yeah. that is, of course, the exact opposite, right? It's like it's super hard, super stressful, etc. Um, combine that with the fact that in a company, in a startup, you very likely spend way more time with your co-founders than you would spend with your uh, your significant other. Um, mm which leads to this, like, it's an incredibly intense environment, which uh, truly brings out the best and the worst in people. And um, I think there's a lot of, like, we see this um, quite often, there's a lot of um, teams where the team is not mature enough. They haven't actually spent enough time to establish the norms between them, to really understand, like, how they take, to understand also where, um, where the boundaries are, where they need to take some time off, you know, like the uh, in a in a in a conversation in a discussion, like where's the point where like we need to we we need to stop talking and we all need to like just cool off for an hour and then come back. These kind of things. Um, I think it comes down to that. It truly comes down to that. It's just like 
building a company is probably the most stressful thing you can do in your life. Um, and I think uh, to a certain extent, because, you know, media presents us, uh, for better or worse, presents us this idea of like entrepreneurship is this like joyride and this coolness and even the, the hard times we seem to fetishize, right? Like there's now, uh, right. you know, failure is this thing where you're like, oh yeah, fail con, like get on stage and talk about your failures and how awesome you are failing. <laughs> Not understanding that failing is incredibly painful, you know? Um, so I think that's, you know, you bring this together and it, it gets, uh, it, it, it very quickly highlights like all the rough patches you have in a relationship. Can a startup be successful with one founder that just hires people to work for him or they have to be teams and what size is optimal? Yeah. See, we get that question a lot because what I think what a lot of people do is they look at, uh, they look at Mark Zuckerberg, they look at. Uh, Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs, and they think like these are the people who are like single founder and they can just like build a company, right? Um, and I think you can build a company as a single founder. I mean, there's enough examples uh, uh, out there in the world. I think if you want to build something truly re revolutionary, something which is super high stress, like a real, like big, something which should become big as a startup. Um, I actually believe you can't do it yourself because it's incredibly, incredibly hard and it's incredibly lonely if you do it by yourself. Um, and if you don't have like a strong co-founder, if you don't have like a, a strong team around you and make no mistake, I mean, as much as like we see, you know, like the, the Mark Zuckerbergs and we think that like Mark is running like Facebook because he's kind of the face of it. Um, of course, he's got an incredibly strong team around him. Um, who are really like co-founders, right? I'm sure like Sheryl Sandberg uh, and Mark have a relationship which is way more like a co-founder than like Mark is the boss and just happened to have hired Sheryl Sandberg. Um, right. I, so I think it's really hard to do it alone. It's it's uh, close. Yeah. Like we have a reservation. We, we, we typically don't work with uh, single founders uh, because it's just like... It's oh, really? Hard. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, well, there's there's definitely a skew. Very interesting. Okay. Um, what other insights have you gotten from uh, from startups? You know, as they they move along. Um, you know, there's the personnel stuff, which is number one. It sounds like, but what else uh, gets in their way or makes them successful? Makes them truly get huge fast or uh, just kind of stay mediocre. Yeah, I think the second the second biggest one is is um, what we see all the time is um, uh, you need to be very careful to not fall in love with your solution and it, or and or your technology, um, which is easy to do, right? It's like I I'm surely guilty of that many many times in my life, um, uh, where you have this thing and it probably even has like some some initial uh, market validation. And it could be a specific technology. It could be like the combination of a technology and, and a business model around it, like whatever it is. Um, but then because you're like falling in love with that, you're um, not able to really read the market anymore. And um, you don't see or you don't allow yourself to see where your customers are, your, are pushing yourself towards. Um, and or not being able to basically abandon something. So this is still the, the, the age-old saying of like, don't throw good money after the bad money. Um, 
I think it's a it's a classic it's a classic mistake founders make a lot. Um, where, and again, like I understand this, right? It's like it's a thing you build, it's a thing you're in love with, it's probably a thing you know best. Um, so you try to make it fit the market, and then again, you have um, a little bit the media bias where uh, there's these stories in the media, of course, where like you know. Um, you take Airbnb, right? Where Airbnb, everybody told them they can't do it. And then initially it didn't work all that well, but then eventually they prevailed. And now Airbnb is this like amazing, amazing company. Um, and that's right. true to a certain extent. At the same time, I'm pretty sure, uh, you know, even if when you look, when you listen carefully to the story, Airbnb has uh, evolved a lot since their original idea. Um, so they have been able to listen to the market and adopt to uh, the feedback they get from them. Okay. Um, are you tempted to uh, do some startups of your own, or are you actively engaged in one? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, so I uh, uh, built about yeah three, four startups. I built a couple of nonprofits, and um, what I've learned, I think I've learned about myself, is that I'm pretty terrible running, like building and running startups myself. And the reason for that is simple for me, at least, is um, I have a fairly short attention span. Um, so some people would say I probably have ADD uh, or ADHD. Um, and that's a really bad trait for a startup founder. Uh, the average time, uh, when you look at the data, like the average time to build and really build a, a startup is something between like five, seven, ten years. So you need to be in it for a long run. And um, uh, for me, that that never worked like you know i get i get very quickly very bored uh um after you know two years <laughs> probably so i'm in much better position to help startups and have the the privilege i have now which is like i can i can divide my attention amongst many many other uh startups and many initiatives um so i have the privilege of helping you know dozens upon dozens of startups but i don't need to do i don't need to run it myself and I know I don't need to commit five to seven years of my life to it okay so you're kind of in an ideal spot and uh, with your shifting attention you can you can help these uh, startups as they come in and not really be bogged down in any one or two of them absolutely yeah absolutely I'm I'm a, a truly happy camper and you know there's an argument to be made that uh, you know in a lot of ways like I spent I do the seven year stint I'm just doing it in a way where I can I can uh, uh, diversify my attention across many different things. Yeah. Okay. Um, any uh, advice for people that are, um, you know, considering making a startup or in a startup? Um, should they, you know, apply to various incubators? Should they try to go it alone? Any uh, any other helpful hints? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's a good question. I think um, what I like to tell people is, um, first of all, figure out. The, the thing you're doing, just be the, be very honest with yourself and figure out, are you, um, and this is particularly true for like first-time entrepreneurs, younger entrepreneurs, are you in love with the idea of being an entrepreneur? Are you actually in love with the problem? So sometimes I, I find entrepreneurs who are, they like the idea of being an entrepreneur or like being a startup founder, but they actually don't care all that much about the problem. Now, the challenge is, you're stuck with the problem. If you're, if you want to be successful, you're like, you better love that problem. Um, the Airbnb founders, for example, they better love building, you know, effectively the future of the hotel industry. Um, 
because if they don't, hell, they're in they're in for a lot of pain for a long time. Um, so figure out like figure out are you really in love with the problem? Um, uh, and once you have that, I think the the other misconception is, and I always encourage people to think about this is. There's a very uh, Silicon Valley way of thinking about how to build a company, which is great for some companies, which is, you know, you go into an accelerator, you get your venture capital, and you build your company. Um, the reality of this is the vast amount of companies will never, ever get venture capital. The vast amount of companies don't need venture capital. Um, there's this uh, crazy really? statistic. There's a, a magazine in the U.S. called Inc., uh, uh, Inc. Magazine. And they've got this like Inc. 500, the 500 fastest growing companies in the U.S. And 80% of the Inc. 500 companies have never received any venture capital. Um, so there's, really? there's, yeah, absolutely. There's very different ways to build companies. Um, so I encourage people to be like a little bit more open-minded and just really think about like, what is my option space? And not just like narrow it down just because like, you know, that's the way we know it or that's the way the media portrays it or that's the way like friends tell us. Um, there's a gazillion ways how to build a company. Very interesting. And have you seen what happens to companies that actually do get funding? Does it help them or does it destroy them? I, I guess everyone would assume that, oh, yeah, you got funding, it's time to party and all that. But uh, <laughs> maybe it's a bad thing for some companies. Oh, yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, uh, yes. So um, I think that's the uh, – you're hitting on, on an interesting point, which is um, uh, in today's time, uh, and this sounds a little weird and hypocritical for the people who are looking for funding and have, have a hard time finding it, but um, money itself is fairly abundantly available. There's actually a lot of money swishing around in the system, and um, the, the good companies, the, the venture investable companies, typically have no problem finding, finding capital, um, which brings me to the point of, like, you want to make sure that the, the people who give you the capital uh, or the companies who give you the capital, that they're a really good fit. Um, because it's ultimately, it's, it's again, like it's a, it's a weird marriage you're entering into, which is, uh, A, it's a long-term engagement. I mean, you know, someone gives you a million dollars, they will be with you for the next seven years. So you better like their face. Mm. Um, yeah. Secondly, they give you the money not because they love you so much. They give you the money because they want to make money. Um, so you better be very clear about that. Um, and understand how that shifts the relationship, right? So what might be might be in the beginning a relationship where, like your uh, your venture capital firm, for example, or your angel investor is this like friendly, you know, like they just want to see you grow, they love you so much. Eventually, they will come to you and say, like, listen, I gave you a million dollars, like I need to get ten million dollars back from you, um, you know, sell your company. Um, so this, I, I mean, history is full of companies which have had really bad experiences like overall with their um, with their uh, funders, with their venture capital firms, et cetera. Um, and of course, if you get the right firm uh, or the, the right people, they are an incredible asset to you because they will introduce you to people, they will help you grow as a leader, et cetera. So I know lots and lots of venture capitalists who are, uh, I, would be, I would be just so honored and delighted to work with them uh, because I know how much they care about the people they work with. Um, so that is to say, uh, you know, be critical. Like, don't just, like, a check is not a check. Um, like, not every check is the same. And, um, you know, money is, is often only a part of the overall equation. Okay. Well, very good. 
Um, for people, again, that are interested in uh, working with Singularity University and applying to the program, uh, what's the best way they can contact you or, or Singularity University? Yeah, so absolutely. So um, a couple ways. So uh, uh, first of all, Singularity University, we have, you know, of course, our uh, website, which has lots and lots and lots of resources, um, and you'll find it at su.org. Um, and this includes, um, uh, there's a lot of like training, like videos and um, uh, videos from our events. And, and we have a, something called Singularity Hub, which is a content website where we talk about the latest in technology, et cetera. Um, there's also contact information, um, including email addresses, how you can actually reach out to us and, and me personally. Um, that's one. The second one is Good. Singularity has a huge community all around the globe. So for your international um, listeners or the people who are not like close to Silicon Valley, um, we have uh, chapters uh, in something like nearly 100 cities around the world, which is our local community, um, which again, you'll find on our website. Um, this is a wonderful way to get uh, in a very direct relationship with our uh, with our wider community. We run events and summits and um, salons, etc. So there's a ton of ways of, of how to get involved. Okay, very good. Any uh, any other topics that you wanted to talk about that we haven't discussed? I uh, I don't know. This was fun. This was uh, really really good fun. So <laughs> thank you, thank you so much yeah. for uh, for some very insightful questions. And your answers, you know, better than the questions were your answers, Pascal. I really appreciate it. Aww, thank you so much. Thank you. No, thank you. This was great. Thank you so much. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I've decided to start including a digest of the interviews I do clustered all at the same time. Uh, the digest will just give a few points from each interview that I found uh, particularly interesting or useful. And it's for people that may not want to listen to the entire podcast, may not have time, um, or just want to hear uh, what I took away from it. Why would you want to hear what I think? Who cares about that? Well, I've done um, well over 160 interviews in the past um, five months, so I've gotten quite a bit of insight. In some industries, I've done uh, 50 or 60 interviews, like Bitcoin, blockchain. So I have a good overview of the landscape now in several industries and uh, the ins and outs, the ups and downs, and what all the players are doing. And therefore, I think my insight may be very uh, much of use to you. All right, then I did a podcast with uh, Pascal Finette from Singularity University. Now, the people from Singularity University are always fascinating. They're Renaissance men and Renaissance women. They're into so many different things. Um, they're all thinking exponential thinking, meaning how can I um, have a massive goal or a transformative purpose that will influence a billion people in the next 10 years. That seems to be their credo. So the magic of thinking big is is on their side. Uh, they're into all kinds of amazing stuff. So anyway, Pascal Finet, he oversees the startups that uh, Singularity, Singularity University incubates. So a lot of insights there. We talked, I said, what's the biggest insight, the biggest determinant of whether a startup will succeed or fail? And it came down to people. It seems like uh, the people in a startup are like members of a band, like a rock band. Uh, a lot of rock bands break up because the personalities clash. Same thing with startups. Uh, if you don't have the right mix of personalities, if everyone's not growing uh, business-wise, management-wise, not just skill-wise, uh, it'll strain the organization and the organization will fall to pieces. So that was a real interesting insight. He said that um, startups did a lot better when they got leadership coaching. And their leaders got that, which was really cool. Uh, so that was a huge insight. 
we talked about uh, two really interesting startups to him. Um, one was Made in Space. Uh, the company is that's, you know, I haven't interviewed them yet, but sounds like they've made 3D printing possible in space where there is microgravity or no gravity. And I'm sure that's a really tough task. Another company, um, they're looking at uh, certain types of cancer and trying to identify that cancer way before you could ever identify it with a CT scan or, or other ways uh, doing by looking at the blood. So I guess certain kinds of cancer, we didn't discuss which, you know, I'll try to find out. Um, they release pieces of their RNA into the blood, you know, the cells do. And these, even though they're in very low concentrations, they can be picked up by, um, by this company's technology. And you can find cancer even before it gets to what's uh, called a classical stage one cancer. And I don't know if you know, but, you know, I found out uh, actually personally, uh, the earlier you can find a cancer and intervene in it, uh, the much higher likelihood that you'll stay alive, you'll be in better health, you won't need uh, possibly chemotherapy or surgery or, you know, all kinds of stuff. So, you know, unfortunately, no one wants to know if they have cancer, but the earlier you look, the better your likelihood, for the most part, of uh, being able to treat it. So this company looks like it's going to be um, showing uh, doctors how to, how to uh, find cancer, certain ones, way early on, so they can be much more treatable. So that was really interesting. Continuing with the insights, so I asked Pascal, again, the biggest reason companies fail, startups fail, we went into that. Then we talked about funding. Uh, he gave an interesting stat saying 85% of all startups do not get venture capital funding. What happens to them? Well, we didn't get into the particulars of that, but um, a good percentage of them still succeed. And even the ones that do get funding, I guess it's like winning the lottery. You know, a lot of people that win the lottery end up broke. Just because you get venture capital funding uh, doesn't mean you're going to succeed. And one thing he pointed out is that, you know, when you get funded, let's say a million dollars, that person's in your world for years to come. So you better like them. They better like you. And your personalities better jive. You know, you can't just uh, see an investor as like a pot of money. There's a person behind that, and they're going to have their own wishes, their own input. And um, you got to watch for that. If you're going to clash with that investor, don't take their money. Because you're married to them for quite a while, and they're your boss. Uh, you got to make money for them. So your idea now is kind of um, co-opted by this investor's money. And you got to perform now. It's just not your idea. Um, you got to make money for other people that may not care about you or have uh, different goals than you do. So these were some of the learnings I got. Uh, really, really interesting interview. Like I said, check out Singularity University. Any of the people in it, they, they've all got a ton to say. Really, really interesting stuff. So that's the digest for today's interview. Um, hope you found it helpful. And again, I encourage you to listen to the entire podcast. But if you don't have time and you just want the quick lowdown, you can listen to this digest. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. 